And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. The Russians have had a very bad week. Brian Stewart is here to tell us all about it. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here in Toronto. Yes, it's Tuesday, and that means... Brian Stewart will be by, the uh, foreign correspondent, the war correspondent, the man who has had his finger on the pulse of the conflict going on in Ukraine, uh, between Ukraine and Russia, with the rest of the world watching and in many cases actively involved. So what's been happening in the last week or so? Well, it's quite the story. Uh, It seems the Russians have had just one thing go wrong after another. Anyway, Brian will be by in a couple of minutes, but uh, I wanted to first talk a little bit about polls. (laughs) You know that we've had this ongoing discussion for the last few years on the bridge about polls, how how accurate are they, what are the issues surrounding polls, um, how life sometimes reflects around polls, political life that is, and certainly the media life. Well, there's a fascinating story going on in Alberta right now. Uh, The election, as you uh, know, is coming up in a couple of weeks on May 29th. And uh, much expectation since the beginning of this campaign as to what might happen. Uh, The polls have been kind of relatively tight, but suddenly in the last couple of days, you have two very different polls from two credible polling operations, Uh, which, you know, they both can't be right, or at least you wouldn't think so. Um, But here they are. Abacus, which we've often talked about, the Abacus polling uh, group, uh, which is based in uh, Toronto and Ottawa. Uh, Abacus has the... uh, NDP ahead by 43 points to 35 points, which is a significant gap, about eight points. That would suggest an NDP government if the election was called at the time the poll was taken. Uh, And specifically, everybody looks at Calgary. Calgary could be the deciding area in the election campaign. Uh, Edmonton is pretty much a NDP stronghold. And rural Alberta is pretty much a conservative stronghold. So Calgary becomes this sort of target area to look. And in Calgary, Abacus has the NDP ahead 42-36, which helps give them that overall lead. Now, that's all very interesting. And the poll came out just over the uh, weekend, and there was a lot of excitement in the NDP camp that they were ahead and looked like they could be formed, about to form a government. Then, suddenly, a different poll is leaked. Now, it was done for a private client. We don't know who. Um, but it was done by the Janet Brown uh, polling operation, and she is extremely well-respected as well, especially in Alberta. She's based in, uh, uh, I think she's based in Calgary, but she's definitely based in, in uh, Alberta. Um she has almost the mirror image, not the mirror image, the, the reverse image of that abacus poll. She has the uh, progressive conservatives ahead 51-40. And in Calgary, that 
key area. She has the Conservatives ahead 51-36. So there's your difference. Your difference is in Calgary. What's happening in Calgary? Who's ahead? But overall, you look at those numbers and they are, you know, they're the opposite numbers. And you say, well, hey, they can't both be right unless there was an incredible shift in a matter of a day or so. So that if they both can't be right, then somebody's got to be wrong. And I guess after the election in two weeks, we'll look back and say, you know what? Blank was wrong. And their, their reputation, one assumes, will be somewhat damaged by that. I don't know. It's a... Uh, it's a, an interesting story. I don't think I've ever seen two polls, two respected polls, polling companies, um, so drastically different with their results. So it's an interesting story, and it plays into the hands of those who say, you know, enough on the polling story. They're, uh, you know, polls... I don't believe polls. Polls are useless. Polls are this. Polls are that. But other people, you know, live or die on the uh, on the results of polls, and uh, they're they're going to be looking at this one, and the uh, polling history books will look at this the difference between these two with two weeks to go in a campaign. Anyway, just wanted to mention that. I'm sure you'll have your thoughts on that, and if you do, don't be shy. Send them along. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. All right. As I said, Brian Stewart is by with his uh, regular commentary and thoughts on the direction in which the conflict in uh, Ukraine is taking and some very interesting points uh, in today's conversation with Brian. So uh, enough for me. Let's, uh, let's get at it. Here we go. My conversation with Brian Stewart. So, Brian, we all have bad weeks, but it seems like the Russians have had a particularly bad past week. Uh, Put it in context for us. We'll go through the different items one by one, but the overall picture, why is this like one of the worst, if not the worst week the Russians have faced during this conflict? Well, you know, things are going wrong for them kind of all at once, and and big things are going wrong, uh, which is a, a really bad sign because, the, of course, the Ukrainians are building up for their big uh, counteroffensive that everybody's waiting for that could come any day now. So now's not the time for things to be going badly, but in fact, they are. And uh, people are beginning to wonder they're going so badly. Maybe the big counteroffensive is already underway. Maybe the Ukrainians have decided, let's just take this on a few stages uh, at once and not a one big push. I don't believe that, but it's, it's, it's uh, as you say, uh, they're not going well. In Bakhmut, you have to go there first. The Ukrainians have suddenly launched pretty big offensives on the both you know, both wings, basically, of the Russian offensive there. They've attacked the Russians in the south uh, of the battle and in the north. They've driven two battalions uh, into a retreat that looks like a rout. Two of the top commanders were killed. Um, the Wagner group, as usual, is screaming uh, blue murder that uh, they're gonna, they may be surrounded. 
if the Russians keep advancing. And as notice, the Russians are also, I'm sorry, take that back, the Ukrainians are also attacking now, not with the one or two tanks that uh, we've been used to seeing them, very small unit attacks, but up to 40 attacks and a thousand men at once. This looks to be not the beginning of the big offensive, but it certainly looks to be an attempt to pin the Russians down in various places. And uh, the Russia, the Ukrainians have been attacking along quite a, f- a front now, of, of from the very north uh, up to the you know up near Crimea and Solodar and areas like that, right down to the very south, Kherson, which seems to be pinning down the main Russian units as much as possible, so they have to defend a line. But then then the Ukrainians can figure out, okay, we know where their good units are pinned down. Where are the weak units that can really clobber? And that's part of the strategy. Pin the good ones down so they can't move, then hammer the small ones to break through. On top of this, the British Ministry of Defense, which comes down every now and then with very insightful intelligence read of the Russian, what state they're in. What's the sort of big picture? And they've got, you know, some excellent listening intelligence. The British came down just a couple of days ago with this statement that the Russian army is in no state to defend itself against a highly motivated Ukrainian army. It routinely only conducts very simple infantry-based operations. It is unlikely to be an organization which will cohere large-scale military effect along a 1,200-kilometer, that's 745-mile, front line under stress. And what the the Brits are really saying here is it is so weak, it is only able to move fairly small infantry units. It's not able to use armor en masse, and it it can't maneuver well enough to reinforce any breach in the line that the Ukrainians might now break through okay let me take uh, let me take a couple of these things you've mentioned and, and and break them down even further uh because they're fascinating let's deal with the british one first of all uh, and i raise yeah. it because this week you you've seen uh Zelensky in london meeting with uh rishi sinak the british prime minister um and and the, the brits once again uh poning up to the uh, uh the armaments bar with more uh weapons for um uh, for Ukraine, just as the Germans have done and the French have done, so those uh, you know the the triple-headed uh, kind of Western European alliance is 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 starting to l- deliver when others were beginning to wonder whether they were backing off. So, you know, combined with that uh, British Minis- Ministry of Defence analysis of where things stand, plus all these new armaments going in, there must be a one assumes there must be a feeling on the part of the British, the French, and the Germans that U- Ukraine could be in the position to really finish this off. I think there are two views that are conflicting, and they're both causing the sort of the same rush to send weapons. And one is that, yeah, you know, maybe the Russians really are as weaker than we thought, and maybe the Ukrainians, the training and the equipment they've got is going to give them a chance to really win. Now would be a time to to back up that power to win uh, when it's needed. 
But another thought might well be, and this seems to be, maybe it's a divided thought, that the uh, the Ukrainians aren't as strong as we had hoped. They will launch their offensive and it may fail or it may go much weaker in terms of wins than we expect. And we'll get the blame for not having supported Ukraine enough. So now would be a very good time to rush whatever support we can give in uh, in time before, before that, you know, to be on the next on the next phase of the war. And I think that's really what a lot of it is. I mean, the, the British have had a good record, by the way, pretty good. They don't have much to give, but they do give some really top-rate stuff. Uh, but it's the the Germans have really hung back. Now they're suddenly, you know, sending in more Leopard tanks and uh, over 120 armored vehicles, really uh, warming up to Ukraine. And the French are sending more in, as you pointed out. I think this is... The thinking here must be on several reasons. First of all, they're thinking about the big offensive and how it could go and how they'll look good and how they'll have most leverage, which is important, uh, if it goes good or ill. Uh, but the other thing they're thinking about is they're worrying a lot about the United States now. There's no secret of the fact that in Europe, the fear is that uh, the Americans might lose their intensity of feeling towards Ukraine and start backing off and supplying less armaments. And that means it's going to be up to Europe to pick up a lot of the, the slack there. And I think that's part very much on their mind. And that other thing that we've mentioned on the bridge several times, I think, is also in the capitals. Everybody's starting to look at Poland now and say, you know, they're becoming the power in Northeast Europe. Uh, you know, this getting we're getting a little uncomfortable. I mean, Poland's coming out of this the big hero, and somehow... Germany and France, we're coming out of this, the slackers. And, and we can't let that happen because, you know, it, it should be a, you know, a Paris-Bonn uh, alliance in Europe, not a, not a, you perish the thought, Warsaw-London alliance or something like that. So I think there's a lot of that catch-up to do, trying to match the, the poles for their uh, muscular intensity. Tell me about these... Um uh british uh storm shadow cruise missiles that ukraine now has yeah we don't know how many they got but they're very very good missiles they're they have a range of uh i think it's about uh 120 miles um they, and what's really interesting about them is they're extremely precise they can hit any targets within russian occupied territory now which means even the uh, Crimea in the Crimea, and they have a tactic worked out where where when they are sent in to take out say a headquarters, a massive armaments dump, barracks, that kind of stuff, that they use send in American uh, decoy missiles in front of them, the U.S. ADM-160 small decoy missile, which goes ahead, confuses the Russian radar, gets them all confused, and that allows the uh, British cruise missile to go in to into that uh, that much deeper territory that the Ukrainians were able to hit at before. I think it's also brought some alarm to the Russians, of course, because uh, this is a cruise missile that certainly would give Ukraine the ability to go much deeper beyond its own border in, into Russia if it so choose to do that in an extreme situation. I'm not suggesting for a moment, and I don't think they are uh, wishing to do that right now, but we don't know in an extreme situation 
um, they might want to have that ability to threaten to go deeply inside Russia. But, well, one thing's for sure. They're not shy about it anymore, about the uh, the potential to strike inside Russia. It seemed at the beginning of the war, either they were unable or they were unwilling to take the, the fight inside the Russian uh, borders. But now they seem to be, uh, they're quite prepared to do that. And they're equipped. I to think do so. That. And then there are leaks suggesting that uh, Zelensky really basically had plans to strike deep inside Russia. And one has to believe that their, their at least their underground movement uh, has ability to do sabotage inside Russia. And some drones have gone in deep inside Russia. I think part of it is the at the early part of the war, the allies are really leaning on Kiev and said, for heaven's sakes, we cannot afford to uh, to have Russia uh you know go escalate escalate on us and then turn towards tactical nuclear weapons and all that i think now the fear of russia doing that is much uh, as much declined and therefore the ukrainians are more inclined to suggest it would be good uh, as a retaliation uh, upon russian attacks on ukrainian cities and infrastructure and all that um and and also that frankly they don't have to fear the russian a nuclear uh, threat anymore because it's very clear China and India, well, there's a few, two of the few friends Russia now has, are leaning very heavily on Moscow, saying basically we don't even want to hear you threatening to use those kind of weapons. It's not in our world. We don't want a part of that. So don't even think about it. And I think that's that's gives the the Ukrainians the thought. You know, at some stage here, uh, you know, maybe we could start t- attacking the major military airfields inside Russia or those giant fuel dumps or the railway lines, things like that that wouldn't cause a lot of civilian casualties, but would give a message to the Kremlin that, you know, you're, you soon, you might be in our range soon, too. I see they knocked down a couple, of, uh, a couple of the Russians, uh, Russia's top, uh, top-rate jets, they were the Su-34 and the Su-35. Um, yeah, that's got a few eyebrows raised in uh, in Moscow. Very I'm much sure. so. They brought down four Russian craft, really, in a space of about four hours, which has not been seen in this whole war again. And this has some real meaning. The uh, Sui thirty four and the Sui thirty five. Uh, you know, they're sort of top line, a bit old, but they're top line uh, fighter bombers and multi multi role fighters. And uh, they were just taken out, as were two of uh, the big sort of transport and headquarters and, and uh, intelligence uh, helicopters, the MIH. Two of those went down. Nine crew were killed. All four were shot down uh, in the Bryansk region, 50 miles inside Russia all at once. And the Russians indicated right off they thought they were shot down by air-to-air missile of some kind, which suggests Russia, Ukrainian planes may have, in fact, shot them down from the border with their missile, or some long-range missiles went in and got them all at once. Or this other suggestion was perhaps it was sabotage, though that seems, you know, that would be remarkable to take out four at once. I think the message here, which is important, is that right, is that uh, and you know Russia's opponent can do it because the, the almost the last thing they've got 
in their back pocket to bring into this war would be a giant air armada. They haven't really used their air force in any major strength. Uh, you know, it was effectively used for a few days, beginning of the war after that, hardly at all. I mean, they fire most of their weaponry from inside Russia because they're so fearful of Ukrainian air to ground, uh, sorry, ground to air uh, weaponry and anti-aircraft weaponry, and they're afraid of losing that highly precious, extremely expensive, uh, sophisticated Russian air fleet. But in in a, under a major attack, if this war goes right to the to the wire, kind of thing, you might be expect to see hundreds of Russian aircraft come streaming down in a, in a, a major attack on the city of uh, the major cities and the infrastructure and on the army units. Well, the Ukrainians are getting the message across. Say, you may think we're not as defended as well as uh, you may think we're not as defended as well as we really are. But this is a message to you that if you send down hundreds, you are going to lose a giant number of your best, most technical, and most expensive uh, air weapon. It'll take you fifteen to twenty years to build back your losses. If you do that, so that's a pretty powerful message. Before, okay, and offensive. Um, what do you think Zelensky's up to? And I asked that question because, you know, a year ago, um, you could hardly get him out of his bunker, right? Uh, television crews were having to go down to, to see him. The, the The word was, "Don't, don't, don't come out. The Russians can it might be able to hit you from uh, wherever they are. So stay in." Now he's he's like the a globetrotter. Uh, you know, he, he obviously he was in Washington uh, not too long ago, but just in the last week or so, he's he's been on this European tour. He was in the Vatican. He was in Berlin. He was in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this week he was in in London, as we said, me, meeting with Prime Minister Sunak. And um, you know, w- w- what's he up to? I mean, it's one, as you suggested. Obviously, he's look, he's looking for more arms, but he, he doesn't have to actually go there to do that. So I, I'm wondering. What do you think might be up on that? You know, it's an interesting selection of places, Vatican, Berlin, Paris, London. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, I think several things are up. As with good leaders, they tend to have several uh, operating motives at once. And, and I think the first one is he wants to really get his foot in the door, get his message across to the, these four leaders uh, before a negotiating phase, which might follow fairly soon after a big offensive. Um, you know, in, in weeks after the big offensive, it's possible uh, the Russians may decide to start negotiations and he would be urged by the world. And he wants to make sure that the ducks are lined up in terms of this is what Ukraine could accept. This is what we would not welcome from you as suggestions. And if you you want to help our position, this is what we want you to do to influence the Chinese, the Indians, the Brazilians, and all the others. So part of that, I think, is a, a pre-negotiating uh, tour uh, with the thought that negotiations might lie somewhere in the six, like six to nine months. Um, that's part of it. I think the other part of it is also, you know, uh, you know, America might not be as reliable as we wish. Who knows what the next year is going to bring? I want to get across the message to, uh, you know, to London, Paris, Berlin, and others. He's already done it, and others like Warsaw. Um, you know, you're going to have to pick up the slack if you want to, you know, stop Russia. If the America loses interest, it's just you know, seeing to that. 
kind of um, uh, possibility. And the third thing is, I think it's all again message. He's messaging Beijing, messaging uh, Russia, messaging the Kremlin. We have allies, and we want you to keep. Rem- we want to keep reminding you the fact that most of the world that you China want to trade with are our friends, and 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 Russia that you fear as future enemy, they're our friends. Uh, so don't take for granted that some time, somehow all our friends are going to lose their will and, and walk away and leave poor old Ukraine naked. That's not going to happen. And, and even the Pope's going to pay a little more attention now before he speaks out and makes his comments. And uh, he's going to be alongside uh, a, a sensible a peace negotiation now and not a, not a slimsy one. Okay. I wanna... So those are two things. Yeah. I, I want to take a, a quick break because I, I want to come back with another question about um, uh, our friend Zelensky because it, it's been, there was something you mentioned about you know five or ten minutes ago that I want to follow up on because I've been thinking about it a lot myself lately uh, that we may have just had the wrong impression of of Zelensky the warrior so uh, let me let me get to that right after this. Welcome back. You're listening to the uh, Tuesday episode of The Bridge. Brian Stewart, of course, is by with his uh, latest commentary on the situation in Ukraine. And we've covered a lot of uh, topics already about what has been a disastrous last seven days or so uh, for the Russians. Uh, But I want to um, spend the second segment talking a little bit about uh, Zelensky, because you mentioned a few moments ago that perhaps, you know, he's more of an aggressive guy than we thought uh, in terms of some of the actions the Ukraine army has taken of late and this clear indication that they've been good striking inside Russia as well. Um, So either, you know, either he was that way all along or circumstances have led him to say, you know what, now's the time for us to really make a push and we'll, you know, we'll drop our sort of waiting for the Russians to come with us. We're going after them. Obviously, the offensive is part of that. But there seems more of late that we're seeing from this guy. There is. You know, I think he's a, he's a very complex individual. But I think several things working on his mind is, is one, we want to confuse the Russians as much as possible because they're not thinking very fast or very, very successfully. And we want to keep them guessing as to what happens next. My, you know, that that freak out over the Kremlin, whether one drone did an attack on Putin and the, the infighting going on uh, between the extreme nationalists and, and the army and the Kremlin and stuff like that. Uh, he is a warrior. He's trying to confuse his enemy uh, quite as much as possible. Um, but, you know, the other thing about him, when you think of all the leaders in the world today, What's the one leader who doesn't ever seem to make say stupid things? I mean, I mean, it's very hard for to think back now and think of one case where Zelensky put his foot in his mouth, you know, right. where he said a stupid thing or or did a stupid thing. And this is most unusual for any leader who has to work in a twenty four seven news environment. And the rest of he gives a press conference every every single night, not a press conference, a, a speech every single night. Imagine, yet he doesn't put his foot in his mouth. And you know, somebody once said, "To understand Zelensky, 
you have to know what staff is around him. It's like trying to understand Kennedy. You can't without knowing who was in the White House in those White House years, right? Well, he's surrounded by a lot of former uh, TV producers, <laughs> people who really study the effects that certain proje- project projects are going to have on people, uh, the way people respond to ideas. And, and they're very clever. And they're thinking a lot of focus groups and the rest of it. What would really affect the Canadians? What would really affect the Americans emotionally and the rest of it? And I think he spends an awful lot of his time sitting there um, yeah, when he's done talking to his generals and his intelligence units and just talking about how can we keep Ukraine in the news, on everybody's conscience, and still the good guy in this scenario, you know. And 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 sh- how can we keep showing the world we've got a lot more friends than Russia has? And then the country of the most friends in the end is really going to be the strongest here. I think he also there is one other element to him, and I think like a lot of Ukrainians. With, with an awful long uh, history to that country and tragic past of that country and having seen it invaded and, uh, you know, his own family, uh, the Holocaust memories and the rest of it. I, I think he's got a fair chip on his sh- historical shoulder and uh, who can blame them in many ways. And I think if he, if he sees a chance to get a poke in, uh, a long time opponent, he's going to take it. Well, he sure, you know, he, sure he's sure going to take it if he, if he can see it. Um, it would be uh, it would be wrong of us not to mention before we wrap this uh, episode up, our friend Evgeny Prigozhin, because it's been an interesting week for him. He, of course, is the the head of the the Wagner Group, and we spent a whole episode on him last week um, <laughs> talking about him. But he's had a like he was already pulling off some bizarre scenarios up to last week. But this past week, he's been unreal. I mean, there's suggestions that he has been telling the Ukrainians what the Russians were about to do. He's been like this super spy on the on the Russian side feeding the Ukrainians. Can you believe that? <laughs> well, of him, I can. I, know, I noticed the Economist magazine is taking to referring to the increasingly hysterical Prigozhin. I mean, imagine the man in charge of the most vicious fighting force in Russia is increasingly hysterical because every day you know, he comes out with some more landish um, thing. But this leak, you know, I don't dismiss these leaks uh, out of hand because a good many of them have turned out to be quite true. And in fact, the leak is that he was going to Ukrainian intelligence, not his Russian intelligence, his enemy intelligence and saying, we can do a deal here. You know, I mean, you just you guys just pull back from Bakhmud and uh, Putin really wants it. So let me capture it. That would look really good. And in return for that, I'll tell you where Russian positions are, including some really perhaps weak ones that you can hammer. I have never in my life, never in my reading military history come across anything so outlandish as that. He denies it, but I think it's one or two Ukrainian officials have confirmed they were talking to him. You know, it used to be said one of the weirdest things about Second World War was the head of the um, German uh, intelligence uh, was actually talking to the Allies halfway through the war, but it was never entirely confirmed. Uh, but I've never heard of anything quite like this. And it's, it, it suggests the guy who 
who and every day if, if Zelensky's giving a nightly uh, speech, so is uh, Prigozhin now. He comes out every night with a outlandish claim, and but some of his claims give away an awful lot. They give away the fact that the his Russian allies aren't performing well. The army around him, he doesn't trust. There's a, a an absolute. Donnybrook going on in Kremlin between the right wing different podcasters and military bloggers and and the, the Kremlin intelligence units and what have you. And all of that is spewing out and falling into the hands of Western intelligence because this guy can't shut up. You know, and I don't know what he future he sees for himself, but it's it's weird. Weird is uh well, I guess it's a bit of an understatement, really. I mean, it, you know, but it, we we always we always wondered from the very first week, how is it that Western intelligence, which often flubbed the ball badly in the past, in our experience, performed almost flawlessly over a month? An awful lot of people in Moscow were talking, in the Kremlin were talking, and one has to wonder if uh, Mr. Prigozhin. So it wasn't already in, in some of his advanced, advanced chatter with others. <laughs> Would anything surprise you now after what we've witnessed in the last Yes, a sudden, a sudden uh, indication that, uh, that uh, Putin uh, was re- thought he, it was time to talk. If we got either that or, you know, suddenly uh, Putin took a leave of absence for medical reasons, uh, you'll, know, you'll notice a, uh, that's one way out. But I think if we suddenly out of the blue, the Russians saw their, the chips are not in our favor at all here. We could be really humiliated. We're going to have to give up a lot. It'll be hard to survive, but we better go ahead with it. Let's get negotiations underway. That would really surprise me because it's sure not going to come from Kiev. I mean, not until they've launched their offensive and see what they can do. I'm going to do it. But, the, you know, that would surprise me. But other than that... Almost anything from the Russian side uh, would surprise me. I'm, I've, I've grown to su- expect surprises from the Ukrainians. They're so devilishly clever in, in their military operations and, and the, the, the way they handle themselves. And so I, nothing that from them would surprise me, but from the Russia, uh, a burst of sudden efficiency and a burst of uh, desire for peace talks would certainly surprise me. All right, we're going to leave it at that for uh, for this week, Brian. Um, okay, fascinating stuff. It just it just never stops week after week. You end up uh, tantalizing us with uh, with new stories. All right, thank you. thank you, sir. We'll talk to you again in a week. Okay, thank you, Brian Stewart, with us as he uh, is every Tuesday or has been every Tuesday uh, for more than a year now, talking about the conflict in Ukraine and its various. Um, strange, bizarre uh, stories that have, you know, spread out from the conflict itself. Uh, so always lots to talk about on the, on that story on Tuesdays with Brian. Um, okay, um, we've got time for a couple of end bits. We know you love end bits. First one comes from the BBC. So I'm going to test your memory here, for starters. Do you remember what Project A-119, Project A-119 was? It's a it's a part of uh, the U.S., I guess, defense policy, or was, during the 1950s. 
Okay, I know most of you weren't around in the 1950s. Some of us were, and we know who we are. But did we ever hear about Project A-119? Because it's quite the story. As I said, the BBC has a piece on it right now. Set the scene, first of all, Peter. In the 1950s, the U.S. was puzzled by the uh, sudden strength of the Soviet Union. Now, they knew they were dealing with an, you know, an ally at the end of the Second World War, and they had the upper hand. The Americans had the upper hand. They had developed the, um, the nuclear weapons. They dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. No one else had it. And that was supposed to be the way it would be kept. But, of course, these things never play out that way. And it became clear in the early 1950s that the Soviets had developed a nuclear weapon as well. And they were pushing ahead, fast-tracking their space program to the point where they were ahead of the Americans. So at a time in the 1950s, it looked like not only was there a Cold War on, but that the Soviets were winning the Cold War on every front, weaponry and space technology. Remember, they launched Sputnik, had a dog in space, and they had a man in space, and they had a man orbiting space, uh, orbiting the Earth. All of these things, or certainly most of them, before the Americans did. So there was there was concern in the White House, in the Pentagon, the CIA. What do we got to do to look like we're ahead? We've got to get ahead of this. So Project A-119 was born. What was it? Well, the headline in the BBC story makes it clear. The crazy plan to explode a nuclear bomb on the moon. That's right. The Americans had a plan that they would fire a missile to the moon and detonate it Right on that, you know, the kind of line between lightness and darkness on the moon as it, um, it goes through its circular pattern, right? And this would be a huge show. Everybody would see it, you know, if you happen to be looking at the moon. Uh, certainly the Soviets would know what was happening. And this was going to show that the Americans were in fact leaders in the space race because they could pull off a stunt like this. So what happened? Did they ever do it? No, they didn't. This was kind of 1958-59. The plan was well underway. And, you know, interestingly enough, we never would have found out about this except for a young um, scientist was part of all this. He was part of the work being done on it. His name, Carl Sagan. That's right, the future visionary. In fact, the existence of Project A-119 was only discovered in the 1990s because Carl Sagan had mentioned it on an application to an elite university. 
So what happened? Why didn't they do it? Were they, were they unable to come up with the technology to pull it off? I don't think so. I think they, would, they, they knew how to do it, and they were proceeding on that front. But at the same time, the Americans were catching up. They were catching up on the space race and would eventually, as we know, lead it by landing, landing Neil Armstrong and his pals on the moon in 1969. But that pathway was clear. And in terms of the Cold War, the Americans were stepping ahead. The Soviets were doing things that caused themselves problems in the international picture. Whether it was Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia in 1968, um, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis and the way the Americans uh, appeared to have won that crisis. Um, so all this was kind of laid the picture for saner heads to say, you know what, we don't need to explode a nuclear bomb on the moon. And they didn't. So there you go. There's one uh, end bit. Here's the other one. This is a lot different. This is um, a story about the American school system. And it's interesting because you have to wonder whether the same kind of thing isn't being thought of in different parts of Canada. This is a, an Axios news story that came out just the other day. And the headline is, four-day school weeks are gaining steam, but students are suffering. So I'll just read a little bit of this um, because I think you'll find, I know I've got a lot of teachers who, who listen to the podcast because they write to me. Um, I'd be fascinated to see what they think of this. Teachers and retired teachers. School districts nationwide are rapidly adopting a four-day school weeks as they seek to cut costs and fill teacher vacancies by dangling three-day weekends despite research showing meaningful learning losses that result. Now, once again, this is in the States, right? But one assumes they're... There are different officials looking at this here as well. 850 school districts in the U.S., representing thousands of individual schools, have dropped the fifth day of instruction up from 650 districts in 2019. That's according to yet-to-be-published data compiled by the four-day school week policy group at Oregon State University. Four-day school weeks are most popular with rural, western districts, though the trend, which gained steam during the COVID uh, pandemic, is also catching on in metropolitan areas. Almost 60 Texas school districts have made the switch. Suburban districts in Denver, in Phoenix, San Antonio are now taking the plunge. Most schools adopt the four-day work week by closing on Fridays, although some close Mondays instead. School days are longer on the other four days to compensate for some of the lost hours. Some schools offer daycare or activities on the remaining weekday that school is closed, for which parents usually have to pay. The pluses include less burnout and more family time for students and teachers, plus less bullying, uh, according to one study, while minuses uh, include... Let me get there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
112 state study found reductions in both math and English language arts achievement in districts that adopted the four-day schedule. Another found lower math scores in kids who attend four-day programs, plus higher absenteeism and lower on-time graduation rates. A RAND Corporation study found only weak support for the three main reasons the districts apply uh, for the four-day week, saving money, reducing student absences, and attracting and retaining teachers. There's also a contagion effect. Some districts adopt a four-day-a-week schedule to poach teachers from nearby school systems that already have the policy in a death spiral that undercuts the whole market. So is this the next great debate within the education system? Seems to be happening in certain parts of the U.S. Whether it's happening here or not, I, I don't know. I'm not familiar enough to know. Perhaps it's already taking place in some parts of the country. And if it is, I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. So um, once again, the old adage, don't be shy. Drop me a line, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. That's going to wrap it up for this day. Um, tomorrow, Bruce Anderson returns after a week off. Bruce will be by with Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Thursday, it's your turn, so get your cards and letters in, plus the random ranter. And on Friday, we'll hear from Chantal and Bruce on Good Talk. All right, I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening today. Talk to you again, 24 hours. Mm-hmm.